0: Our affections on things that please you, on righteousness. And deliver us from all evil. Whether that evil is in our flesh, or whether or not that evil comes from the evil one and his minions. Lord Jesus, we look to the cross. We see what you have done for us, and we say, Glory to you. Glory to you. We worship you. Lord, now also strengthen us to be your evangelists, to go out wherever it is that you send us into our workplace, into uh, our extended families. Maybe you're calling some of us to go out of this city, out of this country. Off this continent. Wherever it is that You send us. Wherever You have placed us. Help us to be Your ambassadors. Your evangelists. To share the good news of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. Who took on the sin of the world that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. What a Gospel. May we not be ashamed. I pray that you would speak through me this morning. I pray that you would open minds and prepare hearts as we take a look at your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, we talked about the question do we really have free will? That is such a a dynamic question, dynamic in the sense that it's explosive. Uh, You get a group of Christians together and you start talking about free will and predestination and all of that, and all of a sudden you've got a powder keg on your hands, and and you're really risking separating and splitting apart the church. And, And I can't help but think that there's part of that that's okay, we, we really, as, as, as people, we need to come together, as, as people under Christ, we need to gather together, we need to talk about these things because, the, because the doctrines themselves impact the way we think about life in the church. And what we're going to talk about today is, is evidence of that, that what we understand about free will and predestination impacts our understanding of evangelism. I'm going to recap last week, but just before I do, let me just, Sort of give you a little snapshot of that. If we believe that people freely choose Christ of their own accord, if it's all about convincing people that Jesus is worthy of their faith and affection, that's going to impact the way that we do evangelism. If on the other hand we believe that actually God has predestined before the foundation of the world those who would be saved and that no one in their fallen sinful nature will choose God no matter how good your argument is, no matter how good your church programs are, no matter how uh, nice your event is, then that also changes the way you do evangelism. Now, the one thing that we as Christians, I hope, all agree on is that evangelism is important, that Christ has called us to be evangelists. We have to go out into the world to share the gospel. But the things that we believe about free will and predestination will impact the way that we go out and do that. You see how it's connected. So, So just very briefly from last week, what did we decide last week? The question was, do we or do we not have free will? That's a tough question, because what are we actually asking? That, That question is asking a lot of different things. So let me answer it in stages. First and foremost, every human being that has ever lived has what I would call an autonomous will, an individual will. Every person makes real choices. People are not puppets. People are not robots. We make decisions. Those decisions are our decisions. They're our choices. We act on our own impulses, our own thoughts, our own ideas. And when we act we bear the responsibility for our actions. Now, if that's what you mean by free will, then yes. But I think free will is a dangerous label to put on that. Because in our autonomous individual responsibility and decision-making for those decisions, we're not free. We're born into this world enslaved to a sin nature. And I don't think we talk about total depravity nearly enough in the church. We talk about wrath at the rock and all of that. But, but the problem is, and this is our real problem, is that, that we've inherited from, all, from our parents, our grandparents, all the way back to Adam, we've, we've inherited a nature that is totally depraved. What that means is we're completely dead inside. We're completely black. We're completely dark. We're completely without light and life. So we'll never choose God of our own autonomous will. We'll never choose the gospel. We'll never choose Jesus Christ if it's just up to us. So to say that we have free will is a little bit misleading. We have a will, but it's enslaved to sin. It's enslaved to our total depravity. And so we can choose whatever we want, but we never want to choose Christ. You see that? That's a problem. So, do we, do we have free will? Well, no, we have an enslaved will. Well, what about salvation then? Well, salvation, and this is what we decided last week, salvation is an act of God. God has to save us against our will. He has to, He has to break into our life, give us the faith that we need to spend on the grace that saves us. Because none of us seek after God. That's Romans 3. And we're all dead in our trespasses and sin. That's Ephesians 2. So if if we're not seeking God, if we're dead in our trespasses and sin, then we have as much chance in our own autonomous will of choosing the Gospel of a dead person choosing to be alive. That just won't happen. So God has to break into our life and say, no, I am going to implant in you the gospel of faith and that faith will blossom into eternal life. I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you birth from above. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to choose you even though you will not choose Me, you have not sought Me, you hate Me, you despise Me, and you will choose anyone and anything but Me. And so God reaches in and He saves us against our free will. Praise God. Which leads us to our third conclusion from last week. Once God has done that, then you do have free will. Jesus said it like so clearly. The truth, the gospel, will set you free. You want free will? Well, have you put your faith in Christ? Has, has Christ opened your eyes to the gospel? Has He taken your, your dead heart and given you a living heart? Has He regenerated you? Has He implanted in you eternal life? Do you have the seal of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who took on your sin, died, and came back to life? If that is true of you, then God has already given you new birth. He's given you new eyes, and He has given you back... Your free will. That's the Gospel. We celebrate that one of the gifts of the Gospel that we have is a free will. Now, here's the problem with that. Now, before we get too excited about having a free will, which we do if we put our faith in Christ, now we can, yes, choose God. Now that He has chosen us. Now we can choose Him, which is good. We can choose to live righteously. We can choose to to increase in holiness but we can still also choose to sin. That's part of the free will. But as Christians, God has protected us with the Holy Spirit. He's protected our hearts so that even when we choose sin, it will not lead to another fall. So, all of this can be summarized by... What we call the doctrine of election. This is highly controversial stuff. But what we believe about election is that because of our total depravity, which we've talked about, and this total depravity is a part of our constitution, what it means to be a human being, our, our absolute nature. Because of our total depravity, no one seeks after God of their own. Talked about that. Therefore, we believe that salvation requires the gracious, initiative of God. We also believe that before the foundation of the world, before God created anyone or anything, before the first angel was created, when it was just God, Father, Son, and Spirit, when God decided what He was going to do, and part of that was to create autonomous creatures that make decisions of their own, not puppets and robots. But in that, he, he, he saw the fall. He saw the enslavement of our will. He also then elected some unto salvation. He said, in time and space, this is the list of people that I'm going to break into their life. I'm going to save them. I'm going to implant the imperishable seed into their nature, into their heart. I'm going to save them. I'm going to regenerate them. I'm going to make them My children." And when I do that, nothing ever will be able to take them away from me. Not even they themselves. That's the doctrine of election. Now, I, we've already sort of gone over this twice this morning, but I, I think it's really important because this is so controversial. I'm going to go through five scriptures, and we're not going to go through in-depth in these scriptures, and I, I just want you to listen. I'm going to I write them down and go back and look at them after before we get into talking about evangelism. and We just really need to make sure that we're all standing on the same ground. And what I want to show you is that we're not just pulling one verse here or one verse there to come up with this doctrine of election that in fact i and and i i appreciate that there are there are people that don't believe in election that are are born again and so i want to be careful how i say this but i i i do need to share with you i just don't understand i can't see personally i don't see it personally how someone can honestly read the the bible and the especially the scriptures i'm about to give you which are not it, exhaustive of the scriptures on this topic read the scriptures that i am going to read you plus others and come to the conclusion that we have anything to do with our salvation now if you if you can sort of if you want to meet with me with your bible open and and walk me through it i'm open to that but i just can't see it I want to share these with you and then we're going to get into evangelism because like I said at the beginning, this all directly impacts how we do evangelism. And the problem with election is that it seems, see how I accentuated the word seems? It seems demotivating for evangelism. Well, if God has decided, well, what, what, what am I going to do? But what I hope, the goal this morning is to show that actually the doctrine of, the ele- of election not only should be cherished by the children of God that have been chosen by God. That's one thing to take from it. But secondly, there is no greater doctrine that ought to motivate our evangelism than the doctrine of election. We'll get to that. But let's just make sure that we're all standing on the same ground when it comes to election Write these down, but I just want you to listen, okay? Write these down. You go back. I want you to check them out yourself, but we're going to be flipping around. When we get to the text that we're really going to focus on, then you can open your Bibles with me there. But the first one is, uh, or first couple are right out of John 6. John 6, 43 to 44. And then John 6, 63 to 66. So John 6, 43 to 44. Jesus just said some astounding things about about Him being the bread of life. And so those that were listening started grumbling, saying it doesn't make any sense. And, and then Jesus understands why they're grumbling, because of course it doesn't make sense to them. Verse 43, Jesus answered them and He said, Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him Of course you don't understand what I've said. The Father's not drawing you to me. He's not giving you ears to understand what I've said. No one can come to me. No one can understand my preaching. No one can understand my ministry. No one can understand my death and resurrection. Because that's what he's been talking about when he says I'm the bread of life. He's talking about his death and resurrection on the cross. No, that is foolishness to the totally depraved person. Nobody can come to me Unless the Father draws him. And those whom the Father draws, I will raise up on the last day. It's all an act of God. The Father draws us to Christ, and then Christ raises us up. And we receive from the Father and the Son. Going down a little bit further to John 6, verse 63 to 66, it is the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, who gives life, meaning eternal life, salvation. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. He's just said it twice, right? He says, the flesh, meaning you totally depraved sinners, is no help at all in salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who gives life. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates you. You're no help at all. He says, look, I know that there's some here that aren't going to believe. In fact, I know that one of my own disciples is not going to believe. And he's hearing everything that everyone else is hearing. But he's not being drawn by my Father. Repeats the thing that we had already said. No one can come to me unless he's drawn by my Father. And then verse 66. This is a really interesting verse. Because this happens in the church all the time. In the church. Quote unquote church. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They couldn't handle the doctrine of election. So he said, well, if I don't get to choose, then I want none of it. Now here's the thing with the doctrine of election. To those who are saved, it's, it's a cherished doctrine. It's, it's just so fantastic and wonderful that while we were in open rebellion against God, God would love us so much that He would send forth His Son to take our sins and die while we were still His enemies and then send the Holy Spirit to take the message of the Gospel, plant it in our hearts, and make us His children. To us who are saved, we just celebrate that and we worship that. But those who are falsely converted hate the doctrine of election. Now, I am not saying that everyone who disagrees with the doctrine of election is falsely converted. But what I am saying is that there are a lot of false converts who cannot handle the doctrine of election. Why? Because it pokes at their pride. It says you had nothing to do with this. All glory to God. And the false convert, though he might be willing to give 99% of the glory to God, wants to reserve some glory of his own salvation for himself. And so those disciples who cannot handle the doctrine of election turn back and no longer walk with Christ. Serious stuff, see? Again, I'm not saying that everyone who struggles with the doctrine of election isn't saved. I'm not saying that everyone who has an honest problem with the doctrine can't be saved. I'm just saying they're not enjoying the fullness of the doctrines of the gospel, which are to be enjoyed. And I am saying that there are a good many false converts in the church. That when you press them on the doctrine of election, if you press it hard enough, they'll leave the church. Just as disciples left Christ. Flipping over to Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. I mean, we could spend a lot of time in Romans here. Well, I just give you a sample. Romans 8, verse 28 to 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Those who are called into salvation, who's doing the calling? God is. According to whose purpose? God's purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God, in eternity past, before He created, foreknew those whom He would call. He foreknew those whom He would save. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He said, this is the plan. We're going to go forward. Everyone's going to reject me. But I predestined to break into the life of some so that by the work of the Holy Spirit, they will be sanctified, which is one of Paul's ways of talking about being born again or regenerated, all the way to their full glorification, which is perfection in the image of Christ. It's all a work of God. Nobody can make themselves like Christ. God does it. He predestined it. He says, I will do this. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined for this, He also called. That that is, those whom He said, I'm going to do this for them, at a moment of time in history, He calls them out of death into life. He predestined it before the foundation of the world, before history, in time and space. He calls us. That's when, when you put the, the date in your Bible, because we're good evangelicals here. You know, when you chose Christ, that actually the date is. There's not nothing wrong with putting the date in your Bible, uh, but the date is not the moment that you chose Christ. It's the moment that Christ called you out of death into life, because before the foundation of the world, He predestined you for that. And those whom he um, called, he also justified. When when Christ called you out of death, he says uh, justification is a term that means I declare you not guilty. It's, it's an act of God. We, we don't declare ourselves not guilty, at least not effectively, uh, but God does. And those whom he declares not guilty, he also glorified. It's in the past tense. It's as good as done. If you, if you are foreknown before the foundation of the world, you will be glorified at the end. Case closed. From eternity to eternity, you're in God's hands. We go to Romans 9, a very difficult chapter. And we're not going to get into all of this but verse 10 not only so when rebecca so romans 9:10 when rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather isaac so we're getting an actual example here rebecca marries the son of abraham abraham had been given the promise of the gospel by god and then the messiah was going to come from abraham so the old testament charts the genealogy of, of abraham to jesus Now, we've got a problem because the son of Abraham has a wife who's bearing twins. Which one is the line of the Messiah? Can't both be. Though these twins were not yet born and had done nothing, they hadn't done anything good, they hadn't done anything bad, in order that God's purpose of election, God chooses... In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of anything that we do, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. That's hard language for us, right? God is love. How does it, how is it that He hates someone? What that really means is, I have foreknown, I have predestined, I have called, I have called, I will justify and glorify Jacob, but I have not done that for Esau. And this was decided before either boy had done either good or bad. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This doesn't seem right. By no means, says Paul. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, the problem with our thinking is that we think that God owes humanity something. But He doesn't. The act of salvation, it's not unfair to those who are not called and saved, because the uncalled, the unsaved, get what they deserve. Notice what what God says is, I will not be wrathful on whom I choose and compassionate on whom I choose. He says, I will have compassion and mercy on those whom I choose. Uh, Jacob didn't deserve this. We don't deserve this. So if God is being unfair, He's being unfair to the elect to our benefit, to our glorification, and to His awesome name. So then... It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Can you get any clearer than that? Salvation depends, election itself depends not on human will. It depends not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy on some. Much more we could say in Romans 9, but... We're going to go to our last one. In Ephesians chapter one, this is a long text, but it's so clear in Ephesians what's going on. So I'm going to read it. Again, all we're looking for is election here. Oh, just mind these verses for for. The, the solid ground that we're looking for, which is that our salvation is entirely a work of God. Ephesians 1, chapter 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It's exactly what we're talking about. God chose us. We did not choose Him. God chose us when? Before He created. Not when we were saved. Before the foundation of the world. And God decided that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. This was all set in stone before creation uh, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Our salvation has everything to do with the will of God and not our own will to the praise of His glorious grace. He gets all the glory. Because He's doing all the saving. And it's with this grace, God's grace, God's initiative, which he has blessed us in the beloved in him. We have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. You just see it all over the place. His will, his purpose, his grace, his mercy. Nothing to do with us. Everything to do with Him. Which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This was all decided before time. He, he brought it to pass in the fullness of time. That is, when He predestined it to happen in history. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will you see it like just over and over again his will his counsel his purpose his grace his salvation we receive it that's the solid ground now that on which we have to stand L- listen i know that this ground is not easy To understand. But that's why we're in a sermon series called Think About These Things. If if you can't get your head around this, this doctrine, that's okay. But would you at least try? Would you work? Would you think about these things? Would you get into the Scriptures? The ones that we've looked at. If you need more, I'll give you more. Talk to people who have have come to a place of of peace about this doctrine. And then maybe you might even want to ask them, why is it that not only have you come to accept this doctrine, but why do you now revel in it? Why do you cherish it? Why has it become to you the most dearest doctrine of the Gospel, which it is for me? I'll tell you one of the reasons, I, I might have already said this this morning, is that this takes all the pressure off. Uh, The salvation that has been given to me that I have received as a gift, I can't lose it because I didn't earn it. I didn't choose it. It was given to me. It was bestowed upon me. It was compelled upon me. It was forced upon me. Uh, It is mine irresistibly. I can't lose it. So I cherish it. Do you see how good it is? If we're in a Gospel that says, well, you have to choose God, what happens when you have that that bad day, that bad week, that bad month, that bad year, that bad season of life. What, what happens when, when you take something that's given as a gift and then you, you feel that you've lost it because of works? Do you see how slippery that is? How devastating that is? It just... It just undercuts the Gospel entirely. If if the Gospel is dependent on our choosing, then we're all a very sorry lot. But praise God it doesn't. So so pastorally, I want to sort of do two things. I want to empathize with you. I wasn't raised in in a house that believed in this. I had to come to this on my own, so I can empathize with you there. But then I want to show you the glory of it this is not something to fight this is something to grab hold of and to to cherish and then to worship god for See, god knew that we couldn't even hold on to our own salvation what what if he what if he said well your salvation is in your power even if we happened to choose it which is we wouldn't have we wouldn't hold on to it very long but it's kept by the power of god praise god So what about evangelism? If God elected who would be saved, if God does all of the the saving, if He does the the foreknowing, He does the predestining, He does the calling, He does the justifying, He does the glorifying, what is our role? Why bother going out to share the Gospel if it's already decided? Why bother praying day after day for our loved ones who continually refuse Christ? Well, just on a very basic level, first first and foremost, all of a sudden prayer seems to matter in evangelism a lot more. If salvation is a work of God, then we need to be taking people to God much more than we need to be bringing God to people. If this is all in God's hands... That then before the foundation of the world we got to believe that god must have put in our hearts to pray for him to move in the lives of our loved ones that he would save them uh, so we take we we take our loved ones to god and we say have mercy lord would it be that this is one that you knew from before the foundation of the world you might say well what's the use of that well god has decided that he wants to respond to our prayers so in, but in the counsel of His will that we were talking about in Ephesians 1, one of the things that God decided was, the means through which He's going to save people are the prayers of the saints. I mean, that's kind of hard to get your head around. But He says, look, I foreknow these people. And the way that, that I'm going to call the, this list of people to salvation is that I'm going to save people who are going to pray for these people. If you want to see powerful answer to prayer, pray the things that God wills. So if God wills the salvation of someone, when you're praying for that person, you know God is going to answer that prayer because your prayer is in line with His will. Well, how do we know if the one we're praying for is one of the elect? We don't, so we continue praying. And you know that that if the one that you're praying for is elect, that that prayer will be answered. So you pray. You say, well, I might as well not even pray. Well, you're missing out on participating in the means through which God has decided to save. Uh, Saying that we don't need to pray for people because God foreknew those whom He would say is like saying, well, since God foreknew the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, He didn't need to come and die on the cross. Do you see how those two are the same thing? God foreknew the crucifixion of Christ. What if the Son of God said, well, since we foreknow this, I don't need to do it. Then we're all lost. Never confuse the ends with the means. The end is set. And we are invited to participate in the means of salvation just as Christ went to the cross so He's called us to pray. And rather than being discouraged in prayer, we should be encouraged in prayer. Because God will answer. He will save the elect. Same goes with sharing the gospel verbally. These are the means of salvation. I want to give you an example. We're going to just spend the rest of our time looking at Jesus the evangelist and Paul the evangelist. Both men fully on board with the doctrine of election. Yeah, they are both evangelists. They are both committed to sharing the gospel. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you love evangelism and whether you love the doctrine of election yet or not, if you can come to a place where you can accept that that Jesus was fully on board with election and you grow in your knowledge and love for the doctrine, it, it, the, these verses just put them in a frame, put them in your house, put them on your fridge, put them beside your bed because we see Jesus the evangelist. Mark chapter 1 verses 35 to 39. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed. He went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him, and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, okay, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What do we see modeled by Jesus, the the evangelist? We see prayer. We see preaching. Those are the two primary activities of evangelism. Jesus, the evangelist, who was also uh, steeped in election theology, prayed and he preached. Now, the context of this verse is is fascinating because the disciples there, they're excited. They're also up early, but they're not up early praying and they're not that motivated to go and preach in other towns. What is it that the disciples want to do? They want Jesus to put on another show because the day before Jesus had healed all of these people. and He was really popular because all these sick people came to Jesus and Jesus healed them. So the disciples get up early and they say, that was a great day. Let's do it again. So they're looking for Jesus because he's the healer. They find him and they're like, Master, this is great. We're going to have another banner day. People are going to love us again today. We're going to go out and we're going to heal some more people. Let's go. Let's get to it. Where there's already a crowd of sick people. And Jesus says, okay, I'm ready to go, but let's not go to that group. Let's go to another town. Let's preach the gospel. Because that's why I came. Disciples are a little bit confused by this. They don't know exactly what to make of it, but they go along with it. They say, okay, that's fine. We already have our, our following here in this town. Let's go to the next town and get another group of people that love us. Except Jesus had different uh, things in mind. He goes to another town and He doesn't heal the same way that He did in that town. In fact, He begins to, to meet increased Opposition as he begins to confront all of the false religious ideas of the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, look, I'm not just here to heal you. If you don't understand that these healings point to a greater healing, then you've missed the point. i got to slow down on the healings. He still healed. He still cast out demons. But he began to confront the false ideas of why he came. He began to confront the people about the, with the truth. And all of a sudden, people are not that crazy about Jesus anymore and then in in we're staying in mark but the parallel passages in matthew 12 and 13 i'm going to talk about matthew 12 and 13 for a moment but stay in mark the reason I, I'm flipping over to Matthew is because the very same episode is, is being described, except Matthew does a little bit better job showing that all of this is happening on one particular day. Jesus has a really bad day. As he leaves the, 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 his popularity in one town, he takes his disciples to another town, and then he has a really bad day. Because it's the Sabbath. And, he, and so he gets up on the Sabbath and he heals somebody on the Sabbath. And instead of being glad about this healing, and I think this is intentional, right? Because he healed in the one place and everyone loved him. He goes to another place and it's the Sabbath. He does the same thing, but he does it on the Sabbath. And all of a sudden, all of the Pharisees and the religious leaders are down his uh, down his throat, down his neck. They're angry with him for healing on the Sabbath. And he gets in this big debate about whether or not he should heal on the Sabbath. And it gets so bad that people want to kill him. This is not the popularity that the disciples had in mind. Not only do they want to kill him, but they go around town telling everybody, don't listen to this Jesus. He's possessed by a demon. And not just any demon, but he's possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Satan is another word for Satan. He has the prince of the demons. He has Satan himself, the arch enemy of God, possessing him to do these things. And the reason we know this is that a man that's sent from God would never heal on the Sabbath. Apparently, Jesus has been upsetting a lot of people for a long time in His evangelism because it's very clear in in Matthew's Gospel that His family says, well, we've got to put an end to this. So Jesus' mother and his brothers, they come, they get together, they have a family meeting. They say, we've got to stop Jesus from evangelizing. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so all on the same day, his family comes and he's in the middle of preaching, sharing the gospel, and his family wants to shut this down. And the people there say, Rabbi, your mother and brothers are outside. And we know from the text that they want to stop Jesus because they think He's insane. It's not a very good day for Jesus. Jesus well, He points to His disciples and says, anyone who believes the words I say, they're My mother and My brothers. On the same day, I'm just going to read Matthew 13. This is all happening on the same day. On that same day, apparently Jesus had had enough. He went into a house. You relate to that, right? Just opposition all day long. You're trying to do good things. You're trying to preach the gospel. Everyone's angry with you. So Jesus just goes into a house and He's sitting in the house. You imagine He's alone. He just needs a break. He says, well, maybe I ought not be in the house. So Jesus goes out of the house and He goes and he sat by the sea. We can appreciate that on a bad day. What do you want to do? Well, I'll be in a house. Well, I don't want to be in the house. I'm gonna go sit by the sea. I just want to be alone. I want the sea to to calm me. Here's the problem. He sits by the sea it's not very long and all these people are gathered around him. Oh, great. What does he do? He evangelizes. Flip over to Matthew chapter four, or Mark, sorry, Mark four. This is the context. Jesus' very bad day. He was alone in the house, he goes out alone by the sea, people crowding around him. Oh great, more controversy. So he gives them, he gives them a parable. Verse three, He says, "Listen! <laughs> I, I, I think Jesus isn't that crazy to be preaching at this moment. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came, and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold, and some even a hundredfold. They said, So if you have ears here. Now the disciples, often thinking that they know a thing or two, that they might want to educate Jesus on public relations, they come around him, right? They say, Listen, it was so great when you just healed people. That was great. We loved it. We were popular, you were popular, everyone loved us. Can we just do that again? But but that's not what you're doing. Ever since then, you've been causing trouble. You've been stirring up dissension. You're healing on the Sabbath. You're fighting the Pharisees. And you're not even talking plainly to the people. You keep talking to them in riddles. You keep talking to them in parables. Why are you talking in parables? Just make the message easy. And you can imagine that all these people are gathered by the sea and they're all saying, what in the world does this mean? The disciples want to be popular. It's exactly what we see in verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Master, what's with all the parables? Just tell us plainly. But Jesus said to them, verse 11, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Everything is in riddles. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus says, look, I'm not here to just make it easy for everyone. Because Jesus understood election. i got to evangelize. I want to go out. I want to share the gospel. And that's what I'm doing. And you need to know that. And you understand it because you've been drawn to me from the Father. The Father has opened your eyes. You see it. But listen to me, disciples. Even if I were to speak plainly, everything to everyone on the outside would be like a parable. They won't understand it. It's foolishness to them. They don't get it. And you have to understand, you have to trust that the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit is doing a good work through my evangelism. And then he goes on and he explains the the parable to them. And this is really important. This is our philosophy of evangelism. You might wonder, we've gotten a long ways from election and evangelism. Not at all. It's exactly what this parable is about. And Jesus said this parable by the sea on that very bad day, in part to teach his disciples what evangelism is. Verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand any of the parables? The sower sows the seed. Or sows the word. That's the gospel. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves. They endure a little while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, on account of the gospel, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, accept the word, and bear fruit. Some thirtyfold some sixty-fold, some one-fold. Do you understand the parable? We evangelize because there's good soil out there. We go out sowing the seed indiscriminately because we don't know who is good soil. Who is rocky soil? Who is just a path? And who is the, who is soil with thorns? We, we sow the word. We go out and we share the gospel. We are the sowers. The sower here in this context is Jesus himself. But we take that role. We are his evangelists. We go out and we sow the word. Because we know even though the seed will fall upon the path, even though we know the seed will fall upon the rocks, even though we know the Word will fall among the thorns, the Word will also fall in good soil. And when the seed falls in the good soil takes root it grows and it produces a harvest and the harvest is different depending on the person some people produce a harvest that is 30 fold some people produce a harvest that is 60 fold some people produce a harvest that is a hundred fold but everyone who is good soil bears a harvest and so we like christ are evangelists and we go out but and here's i think that this is Really, part the major part of what Jesus is trying to say, stop trying to convert the people of the path. Stop trying to convert the people of the thorns. Stop trying to convert the people of the rocky soil. No matter how much you cultivate those people, they will never, ever, ever yield a harvest. And, and what is it that the church is doing so much of in our world today in evangelism? What is the seeker-sensitive model? Well, the seeker-sensitive model has not taken election into consideration. All the wasted energy trying to turn rocky soil into good soil, trying to turn thorns into good soil, trying to turn people of the path into good soil. Just go out and sow the seed. And if you believe in the doctrine of election, then you know that Those who are elect will hear what you say. And the Spirit will take the words that you speak of the Gospel, however unrefined as they are, and the Spirit will carry that and plant it in the heart of the elect, and they will be saved. We ought to be encouraged that Jesus' approach was to conceal the truth by preaching in parables. How many of us are afraid to evangelize because we feel we're not good enough? We, our words are not refined enough. We don't know enough. We can't answer all of the questions. We can't actually put ourselves in a position because what if we get challenged? What if we don't understand? We, we aren't able to explain the gospel as clearly as we would like. Don't worry about it. Do you see how the doctrine of election just just takes that burden off of our shoulders and says just go out and as best as you can sow the seed and allow the Holy Spirit to take that which is concealed by your unpolished presentation and plant it into the heart of somebody who's been foreknown by God and to produce a harvest. Jesus preached in parables. Uh, we make every effort to make it as plain as possible, but even where we fail to make it clear, trust the Holy Spirit. The, the, the burden has been lifted from our shoulders. We don't have to worry about being uh, absolutely convincing and persuasive. Our only concern is to be faithful and true. Now, I understand that there, there are people who give themselves to what's called apologetics. Apologetics is an important field. I'm not saying that we should be bad at evangelism. Don't misunderstand me. Let's not endeavor to go out and not work at making the gospel clear. Let's not try and be bad at at sharing the gospel. We do it as well as we can, and we thank God for the people that that give themselves to apologetics and and do everything that they can to to make the the gospel easy to understand. We have to also balance Jesus' preaching in parables with Paul's exhortation to be all things to all people. I understand that. But let's just take the burden off. The doctrine of election says just go forward and sow the seed and God will call people stop wasting your time on seeker sensitivity preach the truth very next parable we're not going to have time to get into paul the evangelist but you can read romans 10 for yourself the very next parable makes this point. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, as if to balance, right? This, this parable balances the, the parable about the sword. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So let us be like Jesus the evangelist who believed in election. We go forward sharing the good news of the gospel. We spend time praying for people to be saved because we believe that some are elect. There's good soil out there. Let's go and plant some seed on that soil. So that we can be the means through which God calls those whom He foreknew. See how it works together? Election motivates us to evangelism. Because the good soil will yield a harvest. The elect will be saved. Even through you. Even through me. Even when we don't do a great job of it. Don't worry, the truth cannot be concealed from the elect. Because it's a work of God, a mystery, and a wonderful truth to be cherished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that that You have saved us. You've sown the seed in us and we were predestined to be good soil we are yielding a harvest Lord, help us to go forward now and to sow seed indiscriminately to all people because we don't know whether they're good soil or not and help us to trust that those whom you have foreknown will be saved even through us and our presentation of the gospel as unpolished and unrefined as it is, nothing hinders you and the truth cannot be concealed from those to whom you reveal it. We thank You that You've taken the pressure off. We did not save ourselves. We do not need to maintain our salvation. And we cannot save others we want to be workers of the harvest for the harvest is plentiful. there's a lot of good soil out there and the workers are few. Send us. We pray that you would bless our work by helping giving us the, the pleasure and the joy of watching someone come to faith. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen.